good morning, Hepzibah. It's good to see everybody this morning, and uh, I just echo all that's been shared and sung this morning. So grateful for a church that wants to get out and share the gospel and meet our community. And uh, I'm just grateful for the service that you guys give and for the way that you help support the life and ministry of this church in your giving. So thank you guys for all uh, that you are letting God do in and through you. Today we're in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to talk about an issue that uh, really it's two issues today. We're going to kind of hit this text and uh, we're going to talk today about two things that, that all of us understand, all of us have been through. We know what it's like. Uh, how many of y'all in here have been through betrayal? Betrayal. Yeah, we know what it's like to be betrayed. We know what it's like to be hurt, to have someone undermine, to have someone uh, reject or, or whatever way that we feel betrayed. We know in this life that, that we face betrayal, and betrayal can be such a painful thing. And, and David's going to see kind of betrayal of the worst kind today in his life as he deals with it in and amongst his family. But on the other side of this issue and topic of betrayal, we're also going to see the beauty of loyalty. The beauty, I would say, of friendship is, is all throughout this text today. And I pray that as we look at this today, that, that we learn some things that, that teach us how to be a friend. You say, why is it important to deal with this issue of friendship? Well, just look at what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful statements about Christ is it says that He was a friend of sinners. Let that sink in. When we had nothing to offer Him, when there was no good in us, when we had completely rejected Him and His ways, literally the Bible goes on to say that He was a friend of sinners. It was one of the reasons why Jesus was so criticized among the religious elite is because they couldn't believe that Jesus would hang out and spend time with tax collectors with lepers, with prostitutes, those people in the community that everybody else rejected and saw them as worthless, Jesus steps in and He shared His love with sinners. In fact, the Bible says that that's how we know and understand best the love of God is that while we were yet sinners, that's when Jesus came and that's when Christ died for us. So folks, we have a friend in Jesus today, and I don't want you to lose sight of that as we go through what we're going to talk about. Remember, all of the Scripture points to Jesus. Whether you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament looking towards the cross, look or you know up at it coming, or whether you're on the other side of the cross looking back to the cross, all throughout Scripture, everything is about Jesus Christ. And so today there's going to be a lot that we're going to learn even about Him as we look at this pivotal point in His or uh, in David's life. And so I want you to remember a, a name with me. How many of y'all know who Jackie Robinson is? Yeah, everybody in this room probably knows uh, who Jackie Robinson is because he was the first African-American baseball player uh, in the major leagues. And you can imagine the difficulty that he faced as he became the first to play in the major leagues. You can imagine what it was like going into the stadiums where, you know what, he was jeered everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, people were just hoping for him to fail. I can't even imagine living in that kind of a bubble where you know that no one around you really has your back. And when he was playing, one day the Dodgers were playing, and he was playing second base, obviously, and he basically caused an error, and he was embarrassed. Uh, you know, it's one thing for a player that everybody likes to cause an error, but a player who isn't even accepted and, and is almost rejected even by the fans of his own team 
literally, that was a nightmare for him. Because when he was playing good, at least they didn't ridicule him worse. But when he made that error, literally the whole stadium began to boo. The whole stadium began to ridicule. The whole stadium just had this adverse reaction towards him. And something amazing happened that day because one of his teammates, a shortstop, many of you remember him as well. His name was Pee Wee Reese. He simply walked over to Jackie Robinson. And he put his arm around him, and as they both stood there, and he had his arm around Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee looked up into the stands and almost eyeballed all those fans. And as he did that, the whole crowd began to get quiet as he stood there with his arm around that man. Jackie Robinson would go on to say that that one moment saved his career. He wanted to quit. He wanted to walk away, but that one act of kindness, that one friendship that stood by him when that man put his arm around him, it changed everything for him. David is going to have men come around him today, and you're going to see the beauty of loyalty, the beauty of friendship. But we have to start with the pain of betrayal. Let me read to you out of 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through verse 12, and we're going to talk about it, then we'll finish up the chapter. In verse 1 it says, Now it came about after this. Now, after what? If you go back to the this and the chapter that's previous in 14, that chapter ended with Absalom being able to go back into the presence of the king. If you remember, he'd murdered his brother. He left the kingdom. He was living out there really in self-imposed exile. The king didn't even have a chance to do anything. He immediately left when he killed his brother. And if you remember, there was some shenanigans going on with Joab, and Joab ended up getting him back in front of the king, yet there was no real restoration. But when David saw his son, even though there was no repentance, even though there was no confession, even though things weren't really made right, he had compassion. It's your kid, right? And he saw Absalom face down before him, says that he went and he grabbed his son and he, and he kissed him. And that's how the chapter ended. And then you get to the beginning of this chapter, and you can see that David's worst fears were about to be realized, that everything he was concerned about with Absalom, even though he loved him and even though he wanted desperately to restore him, Absalom wasn't ready to be restored. He wasn't sorry for what he'd done. He'd not confessed anything and repented of anything, yet... And in that moment, after being received by his father, that's what it means when it says, no, it came about after this, that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Now, notice it doesn't say that the king did this because he was the prince. Notice it says he did this for himself. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and they are right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has a suit or cause could come to me and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand, he would take hold of him, and he would kiss him. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. 
So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow for which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living at, uh, at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, I will serve the Lord. The king said to him, if These are the last words he'll speak to his son. Right here are the last words he'll speak to him. David said to his son, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited, and they went innocently. And they didn't know anything, but Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. I want to see you to see this morning with me four things, and the first one is Absalom's political ploy. Guys, I got to tell you a little secret about your pastor. I can't stand politics. I believe politics are one of the biggest reasons the church is becoming more and more divided in America today. We've put our hope in politics. Folks, politics can be a dirty game. Politics is a place where there's a lot of shenanigans, if you hadn't noticed. Where there's not a lot of truth. That people clothe themselves in what looks like a righteous cause, only for us to understand later that what's happening in our government, what's happening in the seats of power, what's happening in our communities, even to the local level, that in so many ways, politics is a devastating thing. Politics in a utopian society where everything was perfect, it might work out good, but when you put it in the hands of sinful men, at the end of the day, you know what all politicians really want? They want power. They want power. And Absalom is no different. He's so fed up with what has gone on in his life. He's so angry at his father that he's coming to the place where he wants to take the throne. And rather than just admitting that he wants the throne, rather than going and fighting against his father in war, he's going to start a political ploy to get the throne away from King David. And you see it in many ways in the things that he does in the beginning of this chapter. Like good politicians, you know what he did? He pretended to be a man of the people. You got to kiss the babies. I mean, listen, he would, when, when people would come to him, it, it's interesting because he wanted to give an air of importance. So that's why he got chariots and that's why he got the horses and that's why he had the men run in front of him because he wanted to establish himself as somebody who was vital, somebody who was important, somebody who had something to offer. In fact, I mean, he's just saying to everybody, look, I'm the next king. You might as well start looking at me. Listen, people gravitate to the beams and the rays of a rising sun more than they do of a setting sun. And that means the people that seem like they're the up-and-comers, they're the ones that most people, we forget about the wisdom. 
We forget about the knowledge that's been gained by years of people who maybe are older and listen. So we come up behind it and we're suckers for the new thing, aren't we? It's ingrained into us. I mean, and as Americans, it's, it's horrible for us the way we do this. But he was a man of the people. When people would come up and they would try to bow down to him as the son of the king. No, he, he acted as if, you know what? Listen, I'm just like you. Get up. You don't have to prostrate yourself before me. Get up. Listen, you don't have to kiss the ring. And he'd grab him and he'd hug him. He was trying to win their hearts. In fact, what he was doing, and it was really stealthy. He was literally going to the gate so early that the king's men weren't there yet. It's like today, right? I mean, you work nine to five or whatever it is that you're going to work. He would simply get there earlier than the king's men would get there because they were there to adjudicate cases. I told you a few weeks ago that, that the, 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 really the king and his court, they were like the supreme court for the land. They were judges all throughout Israel. Every village and every town and every city had judges. But if you didn't like what happened, you could appeal the way we can today. And the higher court was the king. So you could go to Jerusalem and try to get time before the king or before his court or one of his men. And what Absalom was doing, it was very sneaky. He would just go out before those men got there. And when people would start to show up, he'd say, where are you from? And they'd tell him, he said, what are you here for? And they'd tell him what he was here for. And you know what? He would show sympathy for them. And he would tell them, my goodness, if only the king's men were here. He made them look like they were lazy or looked like they didn't care. And he was there earlier than they were getting there. And so he'd just say, look, there's nobody here to even hear your case. But I'll tell you what, if I was the judge, if you put me in charge, I'd listen. And I'd give you justice. And slowly through all these things, you realize that what Absalom was doing was he was beginning to win the hearts of the people. Why? Because he pretended to be a man of the people. Most of us, unfortunately, are impressed with image over reality. That's how politicians get away with what they get away with. They just tell you what you want to hear. Doesn't matter if there's a reality behind it. They'll just say what they're going to say, and then they're going to do what they're going to do, but we all get suckered into each side of these politics and we don't realize that, you know what, most times there's, it's almost like there's not a side you can trust. And what they're doing is they're stirring up dissension. He says, I'm a man of the people. He sets an image about it. And remember, Israelites are, are notorious up to this point in their history for not caring about the heart of a man. Remember, that was the whole point with David. So when they went to select a king, remember, even the prophet was looking and going, wow, this one's handsome, this one's tall, this one looks like a warrior. Wow, this guy would be an awesome king. And all the while, God's man was David, who was short. He didn't look like a king. He didn't have the beauty of his brothers. But God looked at him, and what did he say? He you know, get over the red-haired little short guy over there and start to see that it's about heart. And that man is a man after God's own heart. That's the one that should be king. And Israel has made this mistake over and over. Remember what we know about Absalom. What did he look like? Said he was more handsome than anybody in the kingdom. I mean, it's almost a rewrite of Saul and why they fell for Saul. 
because they didn't look at what the reality was of his life and of his heart. They were looking simply at the image that he was presenting. So not only did he pretend to be a man of the people, he also stirred up dissatisfaction. What a clever approach that allowed him to subvert his father's kingdom in a way that no one could, you almost couldn't accuse him. He did it so secretly. Literally, I mean, people were starting to think that, you know what, maybe it's time for David to go. Here is Absalom. Look at what he's doing for the people. Look at what he's accomplishing as the prince. And literally, he's getting David's men to come around him, and they don't realize that Absalom is trying to consolidate power. They know that if he, I mean, Absalom knows if I'm going to get power from David, I can't just go and take it. Many of his men won't be with me, but if I can get some of his men to come and I'm over here in Hebron, if I can get them to come to me, it's going to validate what I'm trying to do. Here are David's leaders with me. They're not against me. They're not speaking against me. But remember what it says, they were ignorant to what Absalom was doing. And then he gets Ahithophel, which is, remember, uh, if you want to know the, the, the dirty little secret on this one, Ahithophel, who became Absalom's counselor, he was one of David's best counselors. In chapter 16, we're going to see that the way Israel felt about Ahithophel, they believed he was like a prophet. They believed that literally it was like he was direct connect with God as far as they were concerned. When he spoke, everybody listened. The words that he gave, everybody believed them to be true and would act on them. And Absalom was very wise because he knew who Ahithophel was. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. You can imagine how devastated he was because of David's sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And he gets Ahithophel to come over and to betray David. And all the while consolidating through his politics the power that he needs and he's stirring up dissatisfaction among the people. And I also want you to see that he brought division believing that he was righteous. Folks, you show me a person that continually stirs up division, they're not acting righteously. They might be acting self-righteously, but they're not acting righteously. Whether it's the government, whether it's within churches, folks, I want you to understand that God gives us the ability and commands us that we are to speak truth to people in love, there is not an issue with us confronting people. There is not an issue with us trying to deal with issues that are going on around us. There is no doubt anyone would argue with Absalom that he was done wrong, that, that it was horrible what happened to his sister. It was horrible the way the king responded, but he still has to deal with the fact that God has put David in authority. David is king, and never once did God tell Absalom, you were to go and take the throne from your father. This is Israel. It is a theocracy. God is the one who determines who is going to be king. And God had said nothing, but David is going to be king. God forgave David. You have to remember that. God had already had that moment where the prophet went to David, and David, he repented. David, he confessed his sins. David humbled himself before God and threw himself at God's mercy and called out for grace. And God said to him, I'm not going to take your life. And your sins have been forgiven you. And who is Absalom to come behind God and say, well, he's not forgiven as far as I'm concerned. Do you see what's happening? 
And he starts to divide the people of God. And all the while, he believes he's doing something righteous, most likely. Folks, I can tell you what God desires from us is that we be a unified people. When our politics do nothing but divide us, there's something wrong. You understand God's not in that. People are leaving churches over masks, over mandates. We're letting politicians out in the world divide our churches by bringing into the arena issues along economics, along race, along gender, along all these issues and all these things that literally there is a need for the church to be clear and speak truth about what God has to say about what a man is, what a woman is. What marriage is between one man and one woman for one lifetime? We need to clarify and be clear that all of us, I don't care where you were born, I don't care what color you are, all of us, every single one of us, we bear the image of God. We were made in His image and our life matters. From the womb all the way to our last breath. We hold those truths. We believe those things because they are biblical. But listen, we can hold those truths and minister and love and be compassionate and be kind. And you show me a group of people who are being constantly divided over all of these issues. I'm going to tell you, somehow we exited Jesus from the conversation. And we took up the politicians. And it was disastrous for the kingdom. Number two, Absalom's treasonous takeover. We see his political ploy, but now he's going to go from just the politics of gaining the hearts of the men and the women of Jerusalem and the men and women of Israel to he's going to actually commit treason. And I, and I want you to see that he committed treason under the disguise of worship. That's what, to me is such an affront here. I told you he believed he was probably righteous in what he was doing. Listen, there have been many wars fought believing that God told us to do it. Listen, there are people that will say, God told me to murder that person. God told me to go to war with these people. God told... Listen, it, you can disguise anything you want under the veil of worshiping God. But you better be sure you're doing the will of God. And so for Absalom, guess what he said? He said, I'm going to go take the throne. That's what he's intending to do. But what does he do? He tells his father, listen, I want to go worship. I want to go make sacrifice. I want to complete a vow that I gave to the Lord. And so that's what he tells David. And David lets him. David doesn't want to hinder his son spiritually. And he says to his son, go in peace. Go do what God's asked you to do, what God's called you to do. And all the while, he doesn't realize that he's going to come back and try to take the throne all under the guise of worship. Don't you love it in politics even? How they try to smooth over all that they're saying with Bible verses? It drives me nuts. Because I want to say you're pushing for everything that is against God, and yet then you're going to come in at the end and say, 
well, I'm a follower of God. I believe God. I love God. And then they're going to spout off verses. That's what's happening here. Why? Because they're going to play to an image that has nothing to do with their reality. And certainly Absalom needs the people who are God-fearing people to somehow believe that what he's doing is a righteous act. And so he does it under the disguise of worship. He knew that the appearance of spirituality was going to work in his favor. He was also a ruthless man who used and deceived others. The thing about Absalom that David understood was even when Absalom comes and takes the throne, you're going to see in just a moment as we read these verses that David literally gives up the kingdom. He walks away from it, and he does it for one reason. He knows that Absalom is so angry, he is so bitter, he is so out of control at this point that if he doesn't let go of the throne and he tries to fight Absalom, Absalom has no problem walking in this man of the people and devastating Jerusalem. He'll burn it to the ground if he has to. He'll bring the sword and kill whoever he has to kill to get to that throne. And David literally walks away from the throne and puts it in God's hands, as we're going to see in just a moment. Why? Because he knows that he's dealing with a man who is ruthless, who can't be trusted, who's yet to repent, who's yet to confess, who's yet to make any of this right. And he's been spending his time deceiving others and also... As he does this treasonous takeover, we see that he faked a succession when in reality he was committing treason. He wanted people to believe that he was doing something that made sense, doing something that was good, doing something that was right. David's getting older. David is is struggling. David, whatever he was saying to the people, and yet he made it sound like we need to just do a succession when in reality he was going to come get the throne by whatever means he had to come and do it. And that takes us to David. Let me read to you verse 13 and continue through the end of the chapter. It says, Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel, they're with Absalom. David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, for otherwise none of us are going to escape from Absalom. Go in haste, or he will overtake us quickly and bring calamity on us, and he will strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. The king said, or the, and the king went out, all of his household with him, but the king left ten concubines to keep the house. The king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all of his servants passed on beside him, all of the Cherethites, the Pelethites, the, Gith- the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed before the king. Then the king said to Atai, the the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday. And and shall I today make you wander with us while I go and uh, where I will? Return and take back your brothers. Mercy and truth be with you. But Atai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely wherever my Lord the King may be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. Therefore, David said to Atea, go and pass over 
Atay the Gittite passed over with all of his men and all of his little ones who were with him. And while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And behold, Zadok also came, and the Levites with him, carrying the ark of the covenant of God. And while they set down the ark of God, Abiathar came until the people had finished passing from the city. The king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me as seems good to him." The king said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace, you and your sons, uh, your son Amahaz and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I am going to wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem, and they remained there. David went up on the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and he wept as he went, his head covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him covered their heads and went weeping as they went. Now someone had told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the co-conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. It happened as David was coming to the summit where, uh, summit where God was worshipped that, behold, Hushai the, uh, the archite was with him and the coat was torn and the dust was on his head. And David said to him, if you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, and I have been your father's servant in past times. Now I will be your servant. Then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So it shall be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall report to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with me there, or are, are with them there, uh, um, Ahimaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. I want you to see against the backdrop of Absalom's revolt, David's humility. I think this is one of the clearest places in Scripture that David shows his humility. Because I want you to see that he did one of the things that I believe is most difficult for any of us in this room to do. When you think about your life, it is hard. Even for us as believers, we've been following Jesus. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would struggle to do what David is about to do. Because David is going to humble himself and let go of his throne and put it in the hands of God. Have you ever tried to put your children in the hands of God and say, your will be done? You ever tried to put your finances in the hands of God and say, your will be done? Your company? Your marriage? I want you to think for a moment how hard it would have been for David to walk away from being king of Israel. He had options. He had choices. He could have fought. But you know what he decided was that God hadn't told him to fight, and he was going to walk away from the throne, and he was going to entrust to his God 
his life and his death and everything about himself. And folks, I'm going to tell you, that is one of the great lessons that we must learn in life is that this life is not ours. The things in our life, our, they're, they're not ours. They are God's. And can we trust him with everything that we consider to be ours? Not only did he take the throne and put it in the hands of God, I'm amazed that he was humble enough to realize that God was dealing with him righteously. See, most of us, when we get in these circumstances, we want to shake our fist at God. We want to look at God and say, where are you? What are you doing, God? Uh, there is a part of us that wants to say, I deserve this, God. I've earned this. I've been through all of this. Now you're just going to take it. Now you're just going to rob me of this opportunity to be king. God, you promised me an eternal throne. Do you hear David saying any of that at this point? It is amazing to me that David trusts that in everything that God does, he will act righteous and he will do good. And whatever happens, we know it to be right and we know it to be good and in line with God's character. And he never seems to question it here. You see, the really hard part is this isn't the first time David has been in the wilderness. This is going to be the second time that David's gone into the wilderness. Do you know how hard it must have been for David to leave the city again and to pass over the Kidron Brook? The palace. He was king. He had waited how many years to be king, obedient to God out in the wilderness, fighting Saul, fighting Philistines, doing all of this. He finally gets to the throne and now he has to leave the throne again and walk back out into the wilderness. Do you trust God with your life that when he calls you to the wilderness again, that you trust him enough to say yes. Because I will tell you this, David's life was shaped more in the wilderness than it ever was on the throne. And I tell you, and I believe this with all my heart, that God's greatest work in us doesn't happen on the mountain, it happens in the valley. Where we learn to trust, where we learn to depend on Him, when we become a people who recognize that we have nothing without God, and then we get to the mountaintops and we tend to forget that, don't we? David had been humbled and his spirit chastened enough in his life that he knew that God was dealing with him righteously. And really, he takes on the attitude of Job. In Job chapter 13, verse 15, it was Job who looked at God and said, you know what? Though you slay me. I mean, think about these words that Job was giving. He looked at God and said to God, listen, though you slay me, if you take my life, I am still going to trust you. That's faith. That's humility. That's trusting God truly with your life. Because listen, at the end of the day, we are all control freaks. Everybody's sitting in this room. We want to know the end. We want to know what God is doing and why God is doing and how God is doing and when God is going to do it. And if we don't have those answers, we start to question. And again, I want to convince you guys, never go to God and say, give me what I deserve. Don't, just don't do it. 
Don't do it. Because David took the opposite approach. I think it's amazing that you see the humility of David's heart because he says something very, 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 very different than we would have expected. Because in verse 25, he says to the priests, I want you to return the ark of God. That's interesting because if another lesson David has learned in his humility is, you know what, the ark of God doesn't guarantee anything. My heart, my life, my, I have to be right with the Lord. That, that box isn't a, a, a rabbit's foot that whoever has it wins the battle. He wasn't concerned about that ark. He said, listen, that ark should be at the temple. That ark is where the sacrifices and where worship takes place. You take that ark and you go put it back in the temple. And my prayer is that one day I might be able to get back to the throne and I might be able to get back to worship at that temple. But look, listen to what he says. He says, that's not up to me. Who's it up to? That's up to God. His words are amazing. To me. I mean, they, they really amaze me. He says, if I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he'll bring me back again. And he'll show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus... I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. I mean, let those words sink in. <laughs> but if God says to me, I have no delight in you, then he said, well, then here I am. Let him do as he sees fit. You see how he's doing the opposite? He's not asking God, give me what I deserve. He's saying, God, I know what I deserve. God, I know I deserve nothing. I know this promise you've given me of an eternal throne. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I have ruined my reputation. I have literally dishonored you with the things that I have done. And he's looking at God and he's saying, you owe me nothing. So if you give me anything, I will receive it. <laughs> That's amazing. It would change our lives and our outlook so much if we would get back to that place. That what allows us to stand today is nothing more or less than God's grace. If we stand today, guess where we stand? In His grace, in His mercy. It all boils down to His favor. If He gave us what we deserved, we wouldn't even draw our next breath. But God loved us so much, right? For God so loved the world that even though that's true of us, He gave us His only begotten Son. So that if we believe in Him, we won't perish. We have eternal life. God has given us so much. And David is at the point where he says, it's not up to me, it's up to Him, and I trust Him. And he'll do what's right and he'll do what's good. And you can see that unspoken, all he's basically saying is, I'm just going to trust him for his mercy. So if he slayed me, if, if I lose the throne, if I never come back into Jerusalem. Let him do as he knows is good. He also submitted to God's will, even though he didn't understand the outcome. He submitted to God's will, 
even when he didn't understand the outcome. Folks, that's when we know we're walking by faith. Faith is getting out there on the limb where we live out truths that we've known and we've heard all of our lives. Things like trust in the Lord with what? All of your heart. But then he turns around and says, don't trust what? But don't trust your understanding. Don't lean on it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3 says. But don't lean on your own understanding. Why? Because it can't hold you. It can't support you. You can't see the big picture. You don't understand what God is doing. And what he says is, rather than having to know all the details, rather than having to know everything beginning to end, why don't you trust me? Listen, is that not the story of men like Abraham? I'm going to give you a land, and you're going to have children that outnumber the stars. And when you think about him saying something like that to a man like Abraham, he is already so old, he is beyond childbearing years, he and his wife. I mean, like, like way beyond. It's going to be an absolute miracle if he does it today. Think about God giving him a promise like that and then waiting 25 years to fulfill the promise that they are so stinking old by that point. You see how God wants to get you way out there? Think about Joseph. He told Joseph as a young boy through dreams, there's going to be a moment in a day when children or when your brothers and your your parents are going to bow down. Remember, he didn't really understand the dream, but he knew that God had big plans for him. Could you imagine his surprise when God's plans for him were your brothers are going to sell you into slavery? And then you're going to go and do the right thing in the house of Potiphar, but his wife is going to accuse you of trying to rape her when you didn't even do it. And now you're going to lose your job in that house and you're going to be thrown in prison. And then at some point, you're going to go to the king and and tell him about a dream. And and literally, they're going to say, you know what, we're going to remember you and get you out of the situation you're in in prison. Then you're left there forgotten for more years. And all the while, God was working, wasn't he? He had a plan and he had a purpose. And all that he was asking of Joseph was, Joseph, I need you to be faithful wherever I put you. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He didn't understand why these things kept happening to him. But rather than shaking his fist at God, rather than saying, I won't serve you if you're not going to serve me, if you're not going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, because I don't understand, I'm stopping until you tell me what you're doing. None of that occurred. And they faithfully served God, even when they didn't understand what, when, how, and why God was doing. And God fulfilled his purposes in those men. And he asks no less of you and me. He submitted to God's will, even when he didn't understand the outcome. There's a crazy picture that's in this text. You almost miss it. God works in crazy ways, doesn't he? David, who obviously out of his lineage will come the Messiah, Jesus will walk the same path he walked right here. A king rejected, right? You see the bigger picture of what's happening? A king rejected who is having to walk out of his own city where he rightfully has a throne. 
Jesus will have the Lord's Supper. He will go out and follow this exact same path across the Kidron into the Mount of Olives where he will pray and worship God until he's betrayed. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't stop and shake his fist at his father and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing? That when he asked his father, is there another way? And he said, no, that he said, well, then not my will, your will. Our whole salvation hinged on that moment. What a foreshadowing. And the king will come back wanting. And he will sit on the throne wanting. It's all such a great foreshadow. And lastly, I want to just finish with David's faithful friends. We see his humbled heart. I want us to see his faithful friends. Folks, you and I should be thankful for friends who are faithful at all times. There's a craziness about this story that's almost missed by us. When David is leaving Jerusalem and he's letting all of these people pass in front of him, these families and these 600 men that have stood by him and have been faithful through thick and thin, what is crazy is his son Absalom isn't there. People like Ahithophel, they're not there. The people that he thought would stand by him, they're not standing there, but I want you to see the parade. You notice what all their names and where they're from, what they end with? They're all ites. They came from a place called Gath. You may not remember, but Gath is where David had to run and hide. It's actually where Goliath was from and his brothers. And when he needed refuge, he went to that area to get away from Saul, and he found these men who were depressed, and they were destitute, and they were struggling. They were greatly discouraged, and he ministered, and he loved them and cared for them even in his exile when he had nothing to offer them and they had nothing to offer him, they found this relationship together and through thick and thin, think about this, it is Philistine men who are standing with David faithfully. That's insane to me. <laughs> you don't hear a Jewish name in there. You see the picture of the foreshadowing still? It's amazing, isn't it? And literally, all these people parade before him. Faithful. A British newspaper ran a contest once asking for the definition of the friend, and they were going to give a prize to the entry that was the best, and this was the winning entry. A friend aptly defined is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. I think that's a good definition of a friend. Whether you think about that with Jesus, with the prostitutes, Jesus with the tax collectors, Jesus with the lepers, when everybody else was saying, get away from me, what was he saying? Come to me. When everybody else said, you're worthless and you have no place in society, Jesus said, come to me, I'll give you rest. Folks, we ought to be thankful for friends that are faithful at all times. Thank God for the people who love us when we're on the mountaintop, but also for those who love us when we're absolutely in the valley and we've hit the bottom. We've all learned this hard lesson in life, haven't we, that blood ties don't always guarantee friendship. 
David's son became his enemy while the Philistine proved to be his friend. And I want you to grasp this and understand this, that if you want to understand what true friendship looks like, let me give you a little another way to define it. Prosperity begets friends, adversity proves them. Let me say that again. Prosperity begets friends. If you don't believe that, go win the lottery. Man, you'll have friends like you ain't ever believed and family that ain't called you in years is going to be wanting time on your schedule. Because prosperity begets friends. We all want to be with the winner, right? But adversity proves who your true friends are. That they're there to help you pick up the pieces. They're there walking in the lonely journey of the wilderness with you when everybody else has walked away from you. Be grateful for friends who don't lecture you but bring hope. Now, I I just want to hit here. The Lord really put this on my heart because I see it too often in the church. Sometimes you don't have to say again you screwed up. You know what's wrong with us as Christians sometimes? We can be so self-righteous. We dehumanize people. We forget that you know what? David, you know what, his, you know what he said? He said when he wrote Psalm 51, when he talked about Bathsheba, when he talked about Uriah, when he talked about the devastation of what is going on in his home throughout all the Psalms, he kept saying, you know what? My sins, where are they? They are ever before me. You know how you exasperate children, parents? It's when you say the same thing 15 times to them and you tell them how sorry they are. I can't tell you the number of times as a parent that I've had to back up because I want to yell because guess who's going to feel better? Me. I'm frustrated. I'm going to feel better. But what I have to remember is that there were times, and thank God he gave me girls probably, Because I would walk in and I could see on their face they were devastated because of the choices that they had made, the way that it worked in our family, the disappointment they could see in my face and everything else. And there were times that I wanted to go in and just blast so I would feel better, but I would look at those faces and you know what I realized? There's not a thing I can add. Do you realize the wisdom it takes to be that kind of a friend to people? that you don't have to be right all the time. You don't have to have the last word. You don't have to drive it home for them always. Most times that when you say something to someone one time, that probably is enough. If they're being convicted by the Spirit of God, let the Spirit of God work. You spoke the truth in love. Be a friend to those people. You see, what David didn't need on this day He didn't need a lecture of all his friends telling him, you know what, you really suck as a parent. That's why you're in the situation you're in. You know, you are, let me me give you a class on governance because apparently you don't know how to govern very well. Do you think anybody needed to stand up and say, how's that Bathsheba Uriah thing working out for you? What David needed was someone to come up and put their arm around him and love him and care for his soul and just pick up the pieces that he is well aware they are already broken. 
What David needs is a friend. And I'll close with this. Be humbled by friends who take risks when you have nothing to offer them. I really think that's another great definition of what true friendship looks like is that we tend to engage when people have something to offer us. And if they have nothing to offer us, if they're not our kid, if it's not our family, if they're not in my class, if they're not in my church, if, if, if it's not my problem, then we tend to disengage. I think one of the surest signs of a man who loves God and who has the heart of God is that you engage with people who have nothing to offer you back. Because these men, they could have went on their way. Listen, this wasn't even their fight, was it? Most of them aren't even Jews. All of them aren't even Jews. This isn't their fight. It's amazing because David has friends. The first one comes up, and what does he say? He says, listen, I want to I go with you. And he says, listen, go back to Jerusalem. There's a king in Jerusalem. He's calling Absalom king, which is crazy to me. But he's so far along with trusting God, he says, listen, go back to Jerusalem. And that man looks at him and says, listen, he's not king. As sure as the Lord is alive and as sure as my king, you, David, are alive, I will go where you go. I will be with you to the end. We all need friends like that. Then the priests come along and they want to go with David. And David asks them, now listen, look at the history of Israel. Kings before Saul devastated the kingly line. Remember, he killed them. The pri- I mean, the, not the kingly, the priestly line. Those men were just as much at risk if they thought that the loyalty was with David. He tells them, I need you to go back because I need eyes and ears on the ground. And you're supposed to be leading Israel in worship. You're the priest. I don't need the Ark of the Covenant. God's will will be done, and I trust His will. So you go back with that Ark. And they put themselves at great risk. And then that last friend that he saw when he was up worshiping, the last friend comes up and David says, I need you to do something for me. I need you to put your life at risk because they've got Ahithophel down there. Everybody trusts, everybody believes Ahithophel. And you hear David pray, Lord, make his counsel be like foolishness. Don't let people listen and fall victim to what he's going to say. And he sends this friend to go and counter what Ahithophel is going to be able to do. And he says, I need you to be in the palace because I need ears in the palace. And I need you to go to the priest so they can come to me and let me know what is happening. And you notice that these men don't even flinch at what they're being asked to do, even though when you think about those, especially those, those Philistines, it's not even their fight. But they're faithful to their friend. 